You are listening to Radio Ramadan 365 Podcasts. Late Night Live. Hot topics discussed daily from 11pm onwards. Get involved by calling 0141-375-3434 or search Radio Ramadan 365. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. It's uh, the 12th of... Me and welcome to Radio Ramadan 87.7 FM. This is Late Night Live, and we've got a fantastic program for you today. Uh, we were going to be talking about organ donation. We've got some fantastic guests, but first of all, let me introduce my partners in crime, Niazbai and Abdul Aziz. Wa alaikum salam. I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I like that. I love it. You got in there. On you go, son. That's it. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. just cracking my eyes. Sorry, go welcome, slow. Niazba has just been beamed onto the um, on the onto the port, so he's just his molecules are just assembling. Absolutely, uh, uh, and I've been tickled you? by the tickle monster as well. <laughs> Abdulaziz, by how have you been? How's your day been? Alhamdulillah, today I had a kind of subdued day today. I don't know what it was in the air. I wasn't my usual self, uh, but I, I made up for it. But I, I just stayed indoors. I think the weather maybe had something to do with it. And I just stayed in and did a lot of reading. Uh, went out for a little while, had something to do, came back. Uh, but I'm feeling better now, a lot better now, Alhamdulillah. So, great, and that's just two thirds of the way through, I think, now, eh? I think so. Almost, almost there. Uh, I must admit, I I was feeling it today. Uh, I think I was getting to that stage where you know uh, you've got the initial high and euphoria of Ramadan and fasting. Um, and uh, now today, I was kind of I was struggling a wee bit, but mashallah, got through it. I think it's just one of those times you're going to have those odd days. How about yourself, Niazbai? How have you been? Very well, thank you. Um, I went for. Uh, cycle ride, trying to always do that, get some fresh air, whether it's a good good walk. And now that they've opened up to allow us to go um, by ourselves for an hour or more, um, it uh, means that uh, I can go go out a bit more often as well. Um, so fresh air is always important. Um, and remember we had last week uh, people recommending that to the brothers and sisters out there because uh, it's good, good, uh, you know, mood uh, stress reliever and uh, helps the mood boost up as well. So um, good. I look forward to another wonderful evening with our guests. Mashallah. And uh, have you been looking at the papers today at all? Is there anything that you that caught your eye? Um, Abdul, why don't you start? Because um, my paper has been a bit more financial related. Yeah, to this. well, t- yeah, today it was actually, it was more kind of news because I obviously I don't buy much newspapers these days, uh, although uh, I used to buy the Guardian or the, what was it, the Independent. But uh, I, I was watching the news today and, and apparently um, Trump has got a really bee in his bonnet with China, obviously, and he keeps accusing of, uh, you know, uh, uh, fixing the, the numbers, as it were, of the deaths and what they're doing. And uh, he's been very abrupt to all the journalists at his uh, questioning. 
So it's actually quite comical now watching him when he just basically has, there's no holes barred and he just kind of accuses China openly now and there's no even any diplomacy around it. So I think it's quite comical now. Um, we're back with uh, our show. As you know, it's based on organ transplantation. So without further ado, let's introduce our two special guests, uh, Bushra Riaz and Dr. Radha Sundaram. Uh, hello, assalamu alaikum. Uh, namaste. Are you there? Hello, Assalamualaikum. Good to hear. That's uh, Bushra. Yes. Um, yeah. So, Good evening. Um, this is Radha. Hi, Radha. How are you? I'm fine, um, thank you. Well, listen. Uh, as you can see, it's been entertainment uh, this evening. Uh, not the one we planned, but never mind. Um, but we're talking about a serious issue, which is organ transplantation. And um, if it's okay, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Radha, could I ask you a little bit about yourself, like what your background is? You're an ICU consultant. Um, sure. Could you tell yes. us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, my name is Radha Sundram. I'm an NHS consultant in intensive care. I've been a consultant for 13 years. And I work at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley. Um, my job involves looking after people in the intensive care. And as you can imagine now, we are quite busy um, with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but one of the other roles that I have is that I'm a clinical lead for organ donation. Um, and I get the opportunity to work with um NHSBT, which is NHS Blood and Transplantation, which is a UK-wide organization which helps to sort of um, manage donations and then subsequent transplantations in patients all across the UK. And I also have the opportunity and privilege to work with um, fabulous people like Bushra who help promote awareness amongst our ethnic minority communities. Okay, fantastic. Could you possibly give us just a, a, you know, an example of a typical day for you at ICU? I mean, it sounds as if it's really intense, uh, as it would be in intensive care, but could you give us maybe a bit of an example of what it's like? Um, so um, it's very unpredictable, but currently it's actually quite predictable because it's predictably busy. Um, um, critical illness is when patients require to be on life support. And they might do so because they don't have enough oxygen in their body, or it might be because they have a low blood pressure or their kidneys are failing, or it might be a combination of all three. Um, a typical day would start at 8 o'clock in the morning when we would get a handover, first from the nurses who've been on night shift, and then a handover from the doctors who've been on night shift. And the handover is then followed by a ward round, uh, currently, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we have to spend a little bit of time wearing personal protective equipment before we go into the intensive care unit. We've also um, currently had to make some adjustments to how we work within the intensive care unit. As you can imagine, our workload has um, trebled, and so we work with larger teams than we're used to. Um, also, because we're wearing personal protective equipment, nobody can actually recognize us because we wear goggles, visors, face masks, yep. gowns. And so we have to have our name written on our gowns so that people know who we are. 
We're also learning to speak louder than we did normally. Oh and my God! Yeah. Definitely not a yeah. time for the mumblers. You can't really mumble yeah. under your breath anymore. You've been yeah. quite clear. And then we do a board round when we go and see every single patient uh, and make a plan for the day. Um, this usually takes us up until about midday. We then have doctors from other specialties who would visit the unit to give us advice. We have microbiologists. We then liaise with the physiotherapists, the dietitians. It's a huge team that we work with. And then the afternoon is often when we used to have visiting, afternoons used to be spent speaking to families at the bedside of the patients or separately if that's what the situation required. Now, that, that has been perhaps the most profound change in our working because we don't allow visitors anymore. It's made it really difficult for us to communicate with families at a very distressing time for these families. So we then... Um, sort of doff RPP, which means in a very systematic manner, we take RPP off and um, pay a lot of attention to hand hygiene and washing ourselves. We then um, go to the phone to phone every single family. Sometimes it's up to about 12 to 14 families that we phone in turn to give them a daily update. We're also very aware that these families are actually waiting by the phone for our phone call. We now have been able to do some virtual visiting so we can take an iPad into the unit and FaceTime the family. We also are able to upload videos onto a secure cloud so that families can then see a video of their family member and what the nurses and doctors are doing for them. So we are having to think very quickly on our feet now and do lots of things that we didn't have to do before. The day then goes on till about 8 o'clock at night when we hand over to the night team. Currently across Glasgow, in all the intensive care units, the consultants are resident, which means they're there all the time. In peace times, the consultant, if once the day's work was done, would hand over to the night consultant and go away. And the night consultant would leave a, a registrar, a trained intensive care doctor, a doctor in training, to sort of look after the unit where they would go home and be on call from home. But that has changed over the last seven weeks. We now guarantee a consultant presence in the unit all the time. Wow. Uh, hello, doctor. Uh, it's Abdulaziz here. Is that Dr. Uh, Sundram? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, well, I was just listening to every word you were saying there. Can I just say off the bat, I really, I, I absolutely salute the work that you do uh, in the NHS. Um, uh, every day that you're, you're going in, you're actually risking your lives for people like us that are sitting at home. So um, I really genuinely appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely genuinely. I and mean, we talk about this in the house and we we see the, the interviews with the, the people in the front line, like your good self, and uh, we're just indebted to you. On behalf of all the, the listeners and my fellow presenters, I just want to thank you, genuinely. Thank um, you. Yeah, I just wanted to know, actually, we could have done a whole programme about your good self. <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so uh, specialist. But I just wanted to, before we go on to organ donation again, um, obviously it's a daft question, it sounds like, but have have we ever had any kind of viral thing that you've had training or experience in the past? Yes, um, we had the SARS sort of epidemic in 2003, and then we had swine flu in 2009, and we were sort of prepared for 
Ebola. Uh, but thankfully, we didn't see that many cases in the UK. We, um, every intensive care unit in the UK prepares for a pandemic. Now, we didn't ever expect it to be in th at this level. And, you know, with any sort of training, just like training for a war, the yeah. you do it every year, you make sure that your plans are there, but you are sort of hoping that it never happens. Yeah. And so I don't think any of us thought we would see something of this scale and severity in our lifetimes or in our careers. So we do, we do get training. Um, so we knew how to surge, which means that we knew that we, we knew where we had to go if we got to 100% capacity. We got some time in Scotland because um, when it happened in Italy in the end of February, we were informed by our Italian intensive care consultants that we had to start preparing. And then it hit London in the sort of second week of March. So all the time from around the end of February till the middle of March when actually we started seeing the cases in Scotland, we had the time to prepare. And we did prepare. So we went through lots of drills. There was education for everybody. We started sort of stockpiling PPE. We started doing simulation drills about getting PPE on and getting in. Um, and again, we didn't know what to expect. Um, there was a sort of strange feeling of excitement is the wrong word, but we were all on a sort of heightened alert. Um, and then the first sort of patient arrived in Paisley, well, it was I think the 21st of March, and soon they all started arriving, so they started coming in twos and threes. Um, if you think about it, a hospital like Paisley has 800 beds, and we have seven beds for intensive care where we can provide ventilation and life support. So it's usually 1% of hospital beds, but here we were being expected to look after the Scottish government. The ask from each intensive care unit in Scotland was whether we were prepared to go to fourfold. So that's about 28 beds for a hospital the size of Paisley. Now, thankfully, we didn't have to go to that. We went to about 250% capacity, but we could only do so because of the various people who came to help us. So nurses came out of retirement to help us. Nurses shortened their maternity leave and came to help us. We managed to upskill nurses from theatres, from wards, to work with our intensive care unit nurses. Doctors um, who are anaesthetists have skills that can be used in intensive care. So they came to help us. Radiologists came to help us turn patients. They did nursing roles for us. Surgeons came and helped us turn patients, care for patients. So doctors put all their egos aside and just came to help. And without the help of all these people, I don't think um, we could have done what we did. We also had a number of volunteers who helped. Um, and I do see volunteers in the hospital helping with you know, tasks that volunteers can do. And I'd be failing in my duty if I didn't mention pharmacists, physiotherapists, the medical physics department. So, you know, often they, they, they live in the basement of a hospital and they repair equipment. They make sure our equipment is up to date. Mm -hmm. But they had to receive equipment that was donated from as compassionate loans from companies, from other units, from China, from Italy. Make sure that they were fit for purpose. They were safe and actually give it to us in record time. So they were working nonstop, the IT department. Now, the difficulty, though, is that while we managed the first peak, 
do we have the resilience to keep doing this? Um, and uh, I think that's something that we're looking at. Um, and of course, we will rise to the challenge, but it's the, the yeah. time frame for this, if it goes on longer and longer, um, it will erode into the sort of strength and resilience of all the team members in intensive I, care and in hospital. I was going to say, Dr. Sundaram, I mean, uh, this must be taking an emotional toll on some of the doctors. And I, I can understand that, you know, for a little while, you, you know, just kind of steal your, your resolve and just carry on. But at some point, do, are you worried that uh, this is going to take an emotional toll on the doctors themselves? And, and in fact, yourself, how have you been able to deal with this emotionally? Um, so the uh, two questions. The first is, are we worried? Yes, we are, because we've never seen suffering um, to this extent. And we do rely on our communication with families to help us cope with the distress that we see. But um, one of the things that has been heartening, certainly in Scotland, is that we've three out of four patients who come with coronavirus to our intensive care units are actually surviving. So that is reward in itself. When we see them discharged from our intensive care unit, I can't tell you how good we feel about it. So that's did you say three? Did you say did you say three out of four? No, so seventy-five uh, percent currently. Okay are surviving so Fantastic. Um, and th those figures in scotland are different from figures from elsewhere so we are seeing slightly better figures and we don't know if it's because of the scale we have not seen so many cases we've not seen as many cases as it's in london or west midlands and if we start seeing more cases whether we still have the same outcomes it's unclear and uncertain for us just now but you know we'll take it 25 percent is is bad okay. for the families that have lost their loved ones. The yes. fact that 75% are actually surviving is really, really heartening. On um, a personal, to... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. On a personal level, um, I think one we have to remember that we, were, we are trained to do this and I was contracted to do this job, but this is what I expect to do. Um, and I think that not a day goes by when I'm grateful for all the for the, all the privileges and pleasures that I have, like have a healthy family, the fact that my own health is good, the fact that the birds are chirping and the sun seems to rise in the east every single day. So I think, I think we all have to remember that while this seems devastating, there are also lots of good things that are still happening in the world. And I think we just have to keep our faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I was going to ask also, are you actually seeing lots of people from the BAME community, the Black Asian and Minority Ethnic community um, that are coming in? Yeah, so um, the data would suggest that we are seeing a disproportionately increased number of BAME patients. Paisley has got a unique catchment area. We're not seeing that many in Paisley. So if you look at the UK data, about 14% of the UK population is BAME. But if you look at the data in intensive care units, about a third of the patients that are in intensive care units are BAME patients. So there is definitely um, a disproportionate representation of BAME patients in intensive care units across the UK. We're continuing our topic of organ transplantation. And I'm just going to bring in somebody who's been waiting patiently. Uh, Ms. Bushra Riaz. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, Bushra. Wa Alaikum Hi. So I'm sorry, I know you've been waiting for a while. We've had a few 
technical issues uh, in today's program, but uh, if you'll bear with us, can I ask you, first of all, a bit more about what it is you do and, um, you know, a bit more about your role? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so um, I'm... I'm, a, I'm the Scottish Peer Educator Coordinator. Uh, I work with Kidney Research. And the project that we're currently working on is educating the South Asian communities of Glasgow, Edinburgh and the surrounding areas um, about kidney disease and organ donation. So we've been working now for the past, uh, we're now into our sixth year. Um, and like I said, we've been working within the South Asian community, that's Sikh, Hindu and Muslim communities. And with the with volunteers who are peer educators that who have been trained from the community that work with the community. And we like I said, you know, we work with the community and we educate them about organ donation, the importance of, of donating and kidney disease and how that affects your bodies. Um, and we've had approximately about just over a thousand people sign up in the past six years to become organ donors. And if you can imagine that one person can save up to nine lives, how many lives we would be we have saved? Well, we'll be saving hopefully, inshallah, um, with the work that we do. Can I ask you? Um, you know, when you're dealing with uh, you know all, all these many patients, what 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 has been your biggest challenge that you found? Um, is that with COVID or is that before COVID? Or? It's be- before COVID and then now during COVID. What's um, the differences? The difference is just scale. Is just that we are looking after more patients. Um, it's a new disease, so we don't know enough about it. Um, you know, our, over the years, that we see patterns in diseases and we are aware about what needs to be done. Whereas this is such a new disease that although we have uh, information and data from China and from Italy and Spain, we, we, we are almost sort of slightly in the dark with how to manage these patients. Um, thankfully, Britain, because of its long history of research, uh, we are doing um we're participating in research trials and we should have data and about 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 medicines that might cost make the difference between survival and not such a good outcome um but i think the challenge actually has just been the numbers and the fact that it's just a disease that we haven't looked after before okay absolutely i, I can imagine that's got to be really 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 emotionally tough as we mentioned you know you had mentioned before but um, you know, it's it takes a lot of leadership um, in the hospitals, uh, and then a, a big learning, very fast learning curve. I can imagine. Um, so, so uh, you know, apart from the, the usual, perhaps you know, doctors have been saying PPE challenges that have perhaps been uh, foremost. Um, it must be, you know, if I can come back to the emotional side, do you have? people to talk to we do um so um 
the intensive care society, there are lots of learned societies um, uh, have, have actually provided us with um, sort of support, psychological support um, by offering us um, sort of help the health boards have psychologists on site to speak to us if we need to. But okay. I guess the most comfort comes from speaking to our own teams because there are sure. shared experiences. Yes. I must say, although it's very distressing and it's been a learning curve for us to speak to patients' relatives on the phone, you know, there are, there are awkward pauses. We are mm -hmm. learning. I mean, this is our new reality, just like it's a new reality for teachers who are having to teach online yes. and imams and priests who are having to speak to their congregations online. So I guess, you know, we are not unique in this um, using this method of communication um, and we've sort of risen to the challenge, but there is a lot of support. And of course, we get a lot of comfort when we come home, uh, when we finish a shift um, because of, you know, we're all privileged to be a part of, you know, loving families, loving friends. And of course, there's sort of um, the appreciation from members of local communities and society in general has been very, very heartening. In fact, we feel rather yes. embarrassed by the outpouring of love and gratitude that we get because um, at the end of the day, we are professionals and we get paid for what we do. Um, but it, it does make our job, our load lighter when we sort of, can sense the appreciation amongst members of the public. Absolutely, I can imagine. I mean, you know, you're dealing with the death questions nonstop and um, switching machines off, organ donation, etc. I mean, that brings up a, a lot of issues. Um, and, you know, when, when you come to such uh, death questions, I mean, how how is that impaired? Because there's got to be a lot more than than previously. So um, doctors will always try to save the lives of the patients that they admit to intensive care, but there comes a point when we have to accept futility. Um, and that is often not a decision that's taken by just one doctor. Um, it's often taken by consensus with the admitting doctors, the doctors in the intensive care unit team, and certainly our team, every consultant and uh, we'll have to agree that we have reached the point of futility. Once we have sort of agreed that there's not much more that we can do for the patient, the burden to make that decision is never on the family. As doctors, we make that decision in the best interest of the family, and we change the focus of care. So caring never stops. It's just the focus changes and from life-saving, it's about ensuring comfort and dignity. And we then start speaking to families about it. When we had patients um, that could have their families visit, often um, the families themselves would say things like, they're not getting better, are they? Because they could see the visible deterioration in their family member. And although they were hoping against hope that their family member would get better, it was, it was tangible proof to them that actually, you know, their relative wasn't getting better. Now, we don't have that because we don't have families visiting. So we are having to start bearing families on the phone. It is really, really difficult. Um, question of organ donation, we ask every family at the end of life about their, 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 their loved one's wishes about organ donation. And I must say that um, 
over the last 13 years of being a consultant, most often than not, families spring the question on us. So as soon as we start discussing fertility, families will ask us, is there any possibility of donating? You know, my brother was keen on donating. That's particularly, um, that's, that's not that prominent amongst our black and ethnic families. Um, and often when we broach the topic to the families, because regardless of um, what ethnicity they are, we ask every family about the wishes about organ donation at end of life. Um, research shows that the two-thirds of BAME families uh, often decline um, uh, donation. Now, it's my, we also have specialist nurses in organ donation who work in every unit, and they will often tell us if the patient was on the organ donor register. Um, if the family, if the patient was already on the organ donor register, but the family still refused, we do not proceed because we would not leave the family with, because they are the survivors, we wouldn't leave them with that burden of having gone against their wishes. And we know that they have to cope with the grief and we would not distress them any further. When the law changes next year, Everyone is, we have deemed consent, so everyone who hasn't opted out, so if you've not gone online and opted out, then we will work on the premise that you wished to donate your organs, but we will still seek assent from the family member, and it's a soft opt-out, so if the family member declined, we will not proceed, because the emotional toll on that family member is huge. The reason we do these awareness um, sessions, and we work very hard, Bushra and myself, along with a vast army of people, work so hard in promoting awareness, is that our communities are most disadvantaged by the lack of donors. 25% of transplant recipient and waiting lists are from the BAME communities, but about 3% of donors are from the BAME community. So there is a disparity in us um, being on the recipient and waiting list, but actually not many of us donate. And we're trying to see if we can narrow that gap by promoting awareness. I think I'll let Bushra speak, um, speak next because she has uh, a lot of first-hand information in engaging with the communities and she can tell us a little yes, bit. Yes, please. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doctor, for um, your, your all the information. Um, Bushar, please, uh, could you tell us a bit more? Yeah. Um, so, um, like I said, you know, I work. We work with kidney research with the peer educators. Um, peer educators, like I stated before, um, they are community members who have been trained to a level um, with all the knowledge um, on kidney disease and organ donation. So we hold awareness events, um, you know, places, community events, for example, like uh, at Mina Bazaars or Open Days, where community members can come and speak to the peer educators, the volunteers, and um, they can give out information. We have a lot of um, leaflets um, in Sikh, for the Sikh community, Hindu and the Muslim community in different languages about organ donation. Now, you know, the biggest thing, what you've got to understand is, obviously, you know, we talk about kidney disease. It's, I mean, kidney disease is a silent killer. Um, with those within the South Asian communities, um, kidney failure is up to five times more common in people from the BAME communities. 
Um, because Asian people suffer from diabetes, um, many of them do, um, those, they are up to 10 times more likely to get kidney failure than those of, say, the white, white Scottish person. Um, and diabetes and high blood pressure being the two leading causes of kidney disease in the South Asian community. Now, when we just look at that as a whole, we know that it's really important to highlight um, the awareness within the communities, especially because many of them do suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes and um, for them to understand what organ donation is and Absolutely. also yeah, to look after themselves. So, um, so we felt obviously within Scotland um, that there was a need um, to, to work with the community members, like Radha mentioned, the, the, we, um, the, those that form the South Asian communities are the lowest um, to donate organs. Um, so to bridge that gap to, you know, this is why the Peer Educator Programme came about. Um, and like I said, you know, over the past seven years, we've had a thousand people sign up, just over a thousand people. So, um, and, you know, like I stated before, one person can save up to nine lives. Wow. Wow. That's a phenomenal amount. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, if, if in saving just one person, like, you know, we can donate our kidneys, liver, lungs pancreas, um, I think it's lower bowel as well, and your eyes um, and tissue. And now, uh, as Radha mentioned as well, with the upcoming um, Scottish law that will be coming into, um, into well, it was supposed to be um, in law mm-hmm. um, uh, August 2020, but because of the coronavirus, it's now been, um, it will be now March 2021, um, which means that everybody will be on the organ donor register um, unless you opt out. Um, but that's still just, I mean, there's still, there's, we're doing a lot of awareness campaigns about the opt-out law, but the what you've got to fully understand is a personal choice and the next of kin will always have the final say whether um, the deceased, if you want to donate or not. Can I ask you a question, Busha, if that's okay? Um, you know, Obviously, this is Radio Ramadan, and I think people are probably wondering, does the NHS take into account things like religious and cultural aspects of the family? For example, in terms of Muslim families, you know, they, they try to get the bed, body's bed within 24 hours. Um, would that still be the case if a Muslim person wanted to donate? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, working closely with Radha in, within the intensive care unit, this is why, you know, we do awareness events, we do talks, we have... Um, Rather, um, always comes along to talk, to discuss, and let you know the process of what happens. Um, the NHS are, are fully aware of um, the funeral um, burial rights and, and the process because you know it's not just within the Muslim community. You've got to remember the Jewish community are very similar in the way that their burials are done as well. It's got to be done as quickly as possible. So, if you yourself have signed up to become an organ donor. Um, it's normally done very, very quickly. You've got to remember as well that you need to remove the organ as quickly as possible to be able to donate the organ uh, to the person that's waiting. So, you know, you can't, it's not something, you know, I'm just going to put it out. It's not something you can take the organ, put it on the shelf and think, oh, it's okay, you know, we'll put it in in a week's time. It's got to be done very, very quickly. So um, in that process, the person then, as I said, once the organs are removed, um, uh, then the process for burial can, can, can continue. Okay. 
Um, uh, and uh, you know, what's the kind of messages that you would give out to the uh, sort of BME community to to try and explain to them um, to be more uh, to encourage them to donate more? I mean, what 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 are the kind of things that you would like to reassure them about? Um, I mean, the, the what we always the main thing, um, well, the main aspect that we always put out to all. Um, community members, whether it's a Sikh, Hindu or Muslim, is the fact that by helping someone in need, you know, that is obviously within Islam, it's a subkajaria, you're helping somebody. Um, you know, from Surah Maida, we always, we know the, 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 the saying, the ayat where it says, you know, if you save a life, to save one person's life, to save mankind, um, which is which is what you've got to understand as well, like um, Dr. Musura Ali was saying before, you know, there's a lot of Islamic fiqh and um, a lot of questioning that goes behind it. But what is the biggest fear is the fact that, like you said, you know, people are scared to get cut up. People are scared. But it's not the aspect of helping. It's the not knowing is what makes them scared. So this is why it's really important that people attend these awareness events. We can speak to them um, if they have any misconceptions, any myths about any of um, of what happens in the process of organ donation, you know, this is what we're here for. Um, and, you know, any questions they want to ask, we're happy to answer. Um, Busha, could I ask you, you know, let's say somebody decides uh, or they're at that stage and the family decides that, yeah, they, they want to, um, that person to go ahead with organ donation. And remember, obviously, this is a, a choice that um, everybody has to make for themselves. But let's say they decide to do that. After the person's passed away and the organ has already been donated, is it possible that the family can actually get in touch with the person who's been the recipient of that organ? Because I think for some people that might be quite a nice thing to to know that a part of uh, the loved ones is actually, in a way, carrying on in the world. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Um, I think just now... With the GDPR and data protection, um, there is a process that works within the NHS. That's it's not really like that's not what I work on. But within the NHS, what they do do is the person that who has donated um, and the recipient, they can. Um, I think it's the recipient. I mean, I maybe rather might be able to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, we, we used to be quite reticent um, in a loving contact, but as you rightly point out, actually the comfort that families who donate get is from knowing that their loved one lives on, there's a legacy that's been left. And so now we encourage recipients to write to the donor family. And how that happens is the recipient writes and then NHSBT transfers that letter or email to the to the donor family and then the donor family it's up to them if they want to make contact with the recipient or not as you can imagine most often the recipients are very keen on meeting the donor family because they just want to thank them the donor family mm -hmm. sometimes even though they're happy to know that their relative lives on the grief might be too painful for them to actually meet people but there have been um, lovely, lovely examples of uh, a, a girl who's um, received a liver meeting the mother of the man who died what, and yeah. donated the liver. Yeah. There are heart transplants. Yeah. And actually, even in Glasgow, we have a couple of um, pairs like that. And they have met and they've actually gone on to become 
very good um you know they they really have a very enduring relationship i can imagine i can imagine uh, it must be i mean we're talking about you know the bama community donating but is it a sort of a curious uh situation to find when somebody from the BAME community has donated a part of themselves to somebody who's actually not from that community or even vice versa. Uh, it must be, a, a, in a funny way, uh, a great way to uh, combat racism. Absolutely. So the only reason why um, we are talking about BME awareness is because it's not because we think that You know, the disproportionate representation should make more of us want to donate because, as you rightly said, donations are very personal choice. But it's because certain blood groups are more common in the sort of um, in in the black and ethnic minorities. And certainly for kidney donation and transplantation, that's really important. And a person from the black and ethnic minority groups can wait a year more than actually the Caucasian, um, their Caucasian counterpart. So actually, because there is a disproportionate representation or disproportionately low, the chances are that most of the BME recipients have white organs in them. Yeah. So until that's, we... that's, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Can, can I, um, you know, I guess there's like this scary. Um, thoughts of our tactics on mutilation on bodies that bodies are cut up, no consideration for the deceased, etc. Um, so you know we're, we're trying to get rid of the, these myths. I mean, so when the bodies are removed, etc., the, the organs from the bodies, could you explain how how it's done? Because I think people have a, a mistaken you know, ideology of, of the process um, and and fear that, um, you know, it's just put up on a shelf or something. Yeah, I think, as you rightly say, the barriers to donation amongst our communities seems to be ignorance and, yeah. uh, and fear of not being able to follow those really personal religious rituals that are so important for us recovering from the grief of our loved one. It's not because the people don't want to help. It's just because the grief is too raw and they're worried if they can't perform the death rituals, they might not be able to secure um, the health and happiness of the family. That seems to be the barrier. So to reassure you, when we do discuss futility, we most, almost all intensive care units in Scotland have a tool that we use called the comfort tool. So uh, it's an acronym, and actually um, R is for religion. And the, the team will always ask the family whether they have any religious preferences, whether they would like a priest or whether they'd like their own faith leader to be loved to visit the, the patient. We then, when once the organ donation team are involved, they also will ask about spiritual and religious preferences. Often the donation process becomes quite lengthy and it's because the matching process is very complex. So once the once the family give assent, there is a series of questions that they're asked, the GPs are contacted, the electronic patient records are gone through with a fine-tooth comb. Because what we wouldn't want to do is to transplant these precious organs into somebody without 
completely making sure that they would actually be of use to the recipients. So after putting the family through all this, if we find that for some reason we shouldn't have transplanted the organ, that would be, that would be completely unacceptable. So the process, we try to shorten the process, but on an average it goes anywhere between 15 to 24 hours. And it also relies on teams coming from elsewhere in the UK to help with the process of retrieval. The patient is then taken, the patient remains in intensive care, and as I say, care continues. The patient's then taken to an operating theater, and the retrieval team consists of a consultant surgeon and a number of other doctors, and they will make sure that we've followed all the consent procedures properly. It's a legal document that they have to actually go through. They then treat the patient just like if they were alive. There is an anesthetist just like if they were alive, and, the, and then the operation will continue. The retrieval is done in a very systematic process, and the patient is then, again, just like they rely, just like if you were having an operation in your abdomen, the incision is stitched. Actually, once all that is done, it's very hard to know, apart from the incisions that you can see, it's very hard to know that anything has been done. It could have been an operation that was done a little while ago. And then... The patient is returned to the intensive care unit if the family wish to see them. Most often we find that the family say their goodbyes at the time we go into the operating theatre and they don't want to see their, their loved one after that. That seems to be what families choose to do. But if they wanted to come back and see their relative, we would bring them back to the intensive care unit. Um. I was just going to say, sorry, I was just going to say, just the only, I mean, um, just, just before I forget, was that obviously Radha's talking about deceased donors as well, but we also work with people that do, we also work within the life, um, you know, those that are wanting to become live donors as well. So that's another aspect as well within the work that we do as well. Um, could, could I ask uh, both of you, actually, this is a scenario that, Actually, I've uh, seen come up quite a few times where people have said that they're they're looking for donations of a kidney. Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of diabetic disease that's around, and people have been waiting for donations of a kidney. It's been about a year or so, and um, then somebody has suggested, "Why don't you go abroad and become a sort of you know like a medical tourist, or go to India or Pakistan?" even and go and uh, get a, a kidney from there, which they say you'll get much more quickly. Have you had any experience with that? And what, 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 what would you say to people who might have that idea? Is it a bad idea? Is that a, is that a good idea, do you think? Or is I'm that just, a viable option? I'm going to just say, just before Radha um, comes in here, what yes. we've also got to understand is um, within uh, Islam, uh, there's three reasons why we can't donate. One, uh, the main one is if you're buying and selling organs, which is halal, uh, which is haram. You cannot buy and sell organs. So those that have said, you know, we're going to Pakistan or we're going to India and, you know, we're going to, you know, like you said, you know, the, the, if there's somebody that's poor, we'll pay you thousands and we'll take your kidney. That is not allowed in Islam. Um, secondly, you know, for to give your body for research purposes, that's haram as well. We cannot give our bodies for research purposes or any part of our organ for research purposes. Um, and thirdly, if, you're, if you want to do a live donation, like if you want to give part of your liver or your kidney, which you can do, obviously that it doesn't happen here in the UK because you've got, for, you've got a lot of testing 
um, and you know you go through a six month MOT, shall we say, of your body before you want to donate. Um, if any harm comes to you and you know that's going to come to you again, that's haram as well, just to put it in simple terms. So I know a lot of people have said, and, and there is within the community that people go to Pakistan, India to do to buy kidneys. This is haram. This is not allowed in Islam. I guess there are also medical reasons why we would sort of strongly discourage them from doing um, because, um, you know, one is that um, although we shouldn't cast aspersions on any other healthcare system, uh, it's unlikely that we would be able to get accurate records from the hospitals there. We also sort of discourage patients because we tell them they'll have to come back and get their follow-up here and the medicines that they use for immunosuppression for the body to accept the transplant will also have to be, might be different from what we use here. We do strongly discourage people just because of um, perhaps the lack of transparency in the process there. We might be doing those countries a disservice. However, um, there have been a lot of um, examples of patients coming to harm by um, you know by going um, yeah. to other countries not just india and pakistan even eastern europe um uh, and we do understand the desperation of patients i mean patients are fighting for their lives you know it's not easy to go to dialysis three times a week put your life on hold so you can see that they are getting desperate um and the only way we can actually um improve matters for our patients from our communities is by actually promoting awareness about deceased donation and getting us to discuss our dying wishes with our relatives. So if we were willing to accept an organ and we didn't think donation was um, against our religion or against our personal belief, then we should take the opportunity to discuss it with our relatives because you find that if you've discussed it with your relatives, they're more likely to say yes or bring it up themselves uh, in the unfortunate circumstance that you are not, you're, you're, you're not going to survive and you reach the point of futility because um, they are your only advocates at that point. Um, so I would urge everybody, if, they, if, they, if donation is something, it's a personal choice, but if they wish to do it, then do discuss it with your relatives. Yeah, I was just going to say rather, actually, sorry, um, there was, um, you, you may know of, um, who, who now is a volunteer at Kidney Research, Bobby Singh, who they own uh, Mr. Singh's on uh, Sockhill Street in Glasgow. Um, he himself was waiting for a kidney. He travelled to Pakistan and got a kidney from Pakistan and he became gravely ill. He was near to death. Um, came back to Scotland. Um, he had to obviously go back onto dialysis, and then he was, you know, over after many after a good couple of months, he was then given had an operation, um, and he survived. But he he could have died because he contracted some infection in Pakistan through that operation. Yes, yes, mm. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. I see. Um, I mean, I must admit, I have come across a few people that have actually travelled abroad. And um, and done that. So that was, uh, I mean, thank you for that, because it is something that people actually do ask uh, quite a bit. Um, I, I was going to also say, Busha, it, do you find that obviously a lot of your work is about education and awareness? Is that becoming easier now with the greater number of uh, BAME people that are being born here and being brought up here? Or is it a case of you have to 
always completely, you know, completely uh, kind of work at it? Um, well, um, again, I think it comes down to um, lack of knowledge in some families. Um, as you as you got to understand, a lot of this, you know, allowing and being halal and haram concept of organisation comes from the elders. You know, it's learned behaviour. You know, I'm sure yourself and many of uh, many of your friends and colleagues have all been brought up to understand that organisation was never allowed. Our parents never allowed it, so we, you know, we we would just believe, believe that it's not allowed either. But unless we don't dwell into it and educate ourselves. We won't know. So in terms of working with the community, it has been a hard slog, shall I just put it right out there. There's been many times that we've had people come up to us, actually elderly um, Muslim men have come up to us and said, what we're doing is haram and we're going to go to hell for what we're doing because we're promoting something that's not allowed. So, you know, we've had a lot of backlash. But then on the flip side as well, we've had a lot of people that have said to us, well done for what you're doing. Now with obviously... You know, the second, third generations are in the UK. A lot of them within the BAME community, as you know, are doctors and have got very professional positions um, and are educated to that level. So that is the breaking of the barriers, um, which is helping, but there still is a lot of work to be done within our communities. Well, um, I'd just like to say there, um, thank you very, very much. Jazakallah uh, uh, Bushra uh, Riaz and Dr. Radha Sundaram for coming on to the show and also Dr. Uh, Mohsen Ali who's, who was in uh, on earlier on. Um, it's just fantastic work that you're doing um, and I don't think words can really express how uh, great um, uh, the work that you're doing is. Um, again, just to stress for the listeners out there that organ donation is a very personal choice it's it's really your choice to make and you should discuss it with your family and, uh, you know, your religious authorities as you see fit because um, we can give you the advice here. Uh, we can we can give opinions, but obviously it, it is your choice. And so I want to let that know. I want to say also thank you very much to my co-hosts, uh, Niazbai and Abdulaziz, who will be with me tomorrow uh, when we'll be discussing the question of the Palestinians under lockdown. Uh, again, um, thank you very much for listening to Late Night Live. Khuda Hafiz, uh, and see you tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you, bye. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to Radio Ramadan 365 podcasts. Make sure to visit our Radio Ramadan website at rr365.co.uk to access all of our podcasts. Stay tuned on our social channels for future content. 